So welcome back to another episode of Cosmic as Fuck. I'm Michael Bryden and I'm here with Peter Nehru, uh, who is the former Chief Constable of Thames Valley Police and a lecturer in evidence-based policing at the Institute of Criminology, but he's also a lowly PhD candidate like myself. Now he's successfully achieved his PhD. You have? Oh yeah, I'm doctor. I've done that. this. I've done that. Congratulations. That's, that's sorted. So I'm here with Dr. Peter. Indeed so. Yes, great. So tell us a bit about how you... So you did your undergrad at Oxford. Yeah, I read history at Oxford. Uh, and I had some very specific special interests, notably things like uh, the early Romanesque period in Europe and... Uh, was found that particularly useful as a police officer. Um, <laughs> I w- I'd also done Latin and Greek, uh, and I, I can still read Homer's Iliad in the original. That's also wow. been of, that's also been a lifelong uh, interest in in the classics as well. So, yeah, it was an int- it was a but the history degree teaches you to think and to use evidence in a very structured way. So mm. when I arrived uh, in my first police force, Hampshire Constabulary, as an Oxford graduate, which I have to say was a somewhat unusual thing to be in 1980. Um, it didn't take very long before the Chief Constable, who clearly had had his eye on me as a somebody he'd recruited from that very different background, yeah. to make use of me. Firstly, to, to design a new policing system for the force. Mm-hmm. So I was a young constable, uh, and... So not particularly popular with the rather crusty chief superintendents of that era because I went and devised the scheme. I basically went and read all that I could find of the research that was coming out of the late 1970s and in particular Herman Goldstein's book on problem-oriented policing and I mm. helped to design a new uh, beat scheme which was then was called the Haven't Policing Scheme and evaluated. Uh, and then I got given the job of providing some guidance and advice because we've had a huge number of new recruits as a result of a very substantial increase in the pay of the police after a dreadful period of the 1970s which seems to me to have come round again uh, and I got the job of building a new, uh, a new a new guidance manual for, so I wrote a thing called Beatcraft which was um, the so-called manual of guidance for the beat officer about the way in which the police should go around their task of carrying out police operations. Mm. Uh, I was wildly popular for doing that. <laughs> um, As a what, like a 21-year-old, 22-year-old? Uh, I was a bit old, I think it was 23, okay. but I was wildly popular. <laughs> uh, but again, that went down... That went down well. Actually, it went down quite well, and I think it still actually did perform a useful function. The the, the book performed a useful function. Um, I then did a couple of other pieces. So I did uh, I did one of the very first hotspot studies, um, which was about designing a, bit, a way of focusing the patrol officers, mm. and it was a particularly focused on license like um, what we now call. NTE, NTE, the nighttime entertainment um, type of policing, but it was focused on problems with licensed, licensed and unlicensed uh, premises in Southampton. So I'd done a lot of you know, translating. Well, I'm not a history graduate, not a social scientist at that mm. stage, but I did an awful lot of field research as a result of the force wanting to explore things. It is a myth, incidentally, that evidence-based policing is, in, is only popular in the last few years. 
we had a we had, we had a forward-looking chief, uh, and he was trying to do different things, and, and I was one of the mechanisms for doing that. Um, and in a sense, it started out my uh, lifelong interest in understanding the police both professionally and also from an academic perspective because I never stopped reading yeah yeah. Uh, as my wife would point out in terms of the sheer number of police books it's not quite my library is not quite as large as the as the library and the institute but it's not very far off um, as I continuously get told Um, I've got most of most of the key works on policing from the last 50 years uh, Very cool, and and I still and I use them because I think it's important to do so. You would expect a doctor to have read wide, wildly, widely on their subject. Yeah, you've read all the RCTs, haven't you? Too in policing. I yeah, I well, my PhD centred around uh, the RCTs. It started out as a as a kind of classic PhD focused on. Um, one RCT, the one I was managing in Birmingham, which was the thing I decided to do. So when I when I got to the point where I decided to, to leave the service actively, um, I felt you you know you always need to have something that you're going to then focus on. And my focus, kind of naturally after thirty years of using it in the field, was to give myself a chance to do a much deeper dive into the academic literature, um, and in particular the experimental literature. So it started out that I was going to, to to manage and carry out a big RCT, which we did. Um, but in the course of it, because we discovered the difficulty of carrying this out, which in itself wasn't a novel finding, but it was a novel finding just how difficult it was to do a diversion experiment. Mm. And I, I, like naturally, as I had done all my career, looked around for, well, where's the manual? Where's the, where's the guidance and advice on how to do one of these? Well, there isn't any. Um, there are any number of academic works that will tell you how to do the t-test and the statistical calculations and will give you a long list of, of ways to treat variables and to conduct a variety of statistical analysis but virtually none of them gave you the practical guidance of how to conduct an RCT successfully. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are some um, scholars have done that, not least of which because it kind of implies you've got it wrong, and academics are remarkably reluctant. <laughs> Both the academics individually and the journals collectively remarkably reluctant to publish failure. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the publication the, bias, yeah, right? Uh, yeah. There's a massive publication bias, in fact, in, in, in favour of studies that find things rather than studies that don't, and in favour of studies that are well conducted rather than studies that aren't. So obviously, you don't, you know, you don't publish a complete failure. The problem with that, of course, is you don't then learn how you know the things that could have prevented you from having that failure. So I, I gathered together all of the RCTs, 122 of them that I could find up to the end of 20, up to the beginning of 2017, and I did a series of analyses on factors that contributed to success or failure, in particular to the treatment integrity, i.e., how well done was the study. How well does, did the treatment get carried out, and what were the problems with randomization, which are at the heart of successful RCTs? Yeah. So I have read every single randomized control trial that has ever been conducted in policing, and some of them were a pretty tough read. Yeah. yeah. And some of them were very good and beautiful and elegant and and you know well written, but then, so that wasn't the general rule. <laughs> Where would you put Larry's in in that? Oh, there's some of the, no, they're some of the very best. Um, <laughs> uh, they're some of the very best. I mean, in particular, some the 
I mean, his first RCT was the uh, was the first of the domestic violence experiments, mm-hmm. and that had its flaws. It was actually better conducted than many others, but it still had its flaws. But his his Milwaukee domestic violence experiment is is a really well conducted experiment. Similarly, the hotspot experiment uh, that he conducted with David Weisberg is is an, is an absolute classic of its type. Not the least of which is the attention to the level of field treatment, which mm-hmm. is a perennial. I mean, I you know having been a police commander and having been a police inspector and having been a police constable, I know very well. Firstly, as a police constable, I certainly never want to do what anyone told me to do. <laughs> so, so the idea that you're going to get a, you're going to get a, a collection of police constables who are trained in discretion and and being independent spirits to go and do exactly what they're told to do in 15 minute segments of patrol it's it's a, it it is a challenge um similarly as a commander that you know any any commander in policing who thinks that they've been successful in implementing something is certainly is certainly is certainly someone that you wouldn't want to put in charge of anything difficult yeah. because almost everything in policing uh, is tricky to get on the ground and you need to be um, it usually takes two or three years to really embed something and that means a level of consistency that's quite tricky to deliver in a world where most people stay around about two years in any given post I mean by the time I left Hampshire in 1998 after 17 odd years in Hampshire I'd had I think 19 different posts so I'd moved around a lot I'd done a bit of just about everything in fact, the longest post, which tells you how short some of them were, the longest post was as a detective superintendent, which was in the last three years. Mm. Um, most of the others, I'd moved from uh, patrol to being a temporary detective constable to being a sergeant to being a detective sergeant to being uh, an inspector doing one thing to an inspector doing another thing to a chief inspector for about six weeks, uh, <laughs> etc., and on and on. Um, I moved up very rapidly, but I'd never stayed it very, very long. In the lo- and then, of course, the, suddenly, as a as a assistant chief and a, and a chief, I stayed in the same place doing the same job for a, for a reasonable length of time. And and that's absolutely right. Those are those are posts where consistency is really critical. Mm. So, how did you end up at Cambridge in the end? What brought you to a PhD and to the institute? Well, I came to Cambridge first when uh, I did a thing called the Strategic Command Course, which is the program that trains you to be in a, to be a, a chief officer. Uh, at that stage, uh, Tony Bottoms, as the director of the institute, had persuaded the police service that its senior management needed to have some evidence-based mm-hmm. training, yeah. and the MST in police in applied criminology or policing, as it's become. Uh, was was developed in order to provide the basis of that program, um, and I was on the second program in 1997. Um, so I did I did a did and I did the first year of it. I didn't do the second year because I already had a master's degree and I already felt fat too. It really wasn't necessary to have another one. It looked a little bit strange. So instead of doing that, I wrote a book, um, Policing Ethics and Human Rights, which is still one of the better sellers on police ethics, um, and. And in a sense, I think that was a more useful thing for me to do rather than the thesis. Well, generated a certain amount of royalties as well, which I suppose is probably about <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um, cash money. And and yeah, and it paralleled the work I was doing because I, I was leading the work on getting the Human Rights Act to work in British policing, and then I was in charge of police use of firearms, both of which had a direct relationship, to, obviously, to ethics and human rights. Yeah. Um, as to as to when I as to whether the, the, the process of 
of, of coming back here. Well, having done the programme and having seen how it had developed, I, I set up and built a thing called the National Policing Improvement Agency, which took over all of police training and therefore inherited the uh, the, the programme, but that by then was not a mandatory part of the Strategic Command course, but was one that the police service um, was still investing in. And I adopted a strategy of using funds from the National Policing Improvement Agency to fund or part fund programmes, the, pro the programme here at, uh, at Cambridge, uh, in, in order to make sure that in every police force around the country, given that one of the missions of the MPIA was to drive forward evidence in policing, I had, I had a group of people, preferably at reasonably senior level, who were literate in the evidence and to whom we could go when we wanted to, to build a research base. Um, and I think we pretty successfully did that, actually. And at the same time, I also spent a nearly a million dollars, uh, over £650,000, on uh, Campbell Systematic Reviews, because I wanted to make yeah. sure that we had a baseline for what we really did know about policing. Um, and I, I think it was t 10 reviews in the end I funded from the MPIA, um, which have become the... the the baseline information for the for the what work centre in crime and justice uh, because it's essential you if you use systematic reviews effectively you provide yourself firstly a knowledge of what you know and then a knowledge of where the gaps are where you should focus additional research um, and and I've gone on to be the co-chair of the of the collaboration and I'm now leading work on using the same techniques on terrorism and radicalization and mm, things like and things like body worn cameras but in terms of why did I end up as a lecturer on the programme, well, if you, once, once I decided that I was going to do a PhD, there was only one place I was going to do it, uh, because I already had the, uh, I'd already had a take, got a taste for the type of criminology that the Institute uh, does. Mm. Um, and I'd already worked closely with uh, Professor Sherman uh, as well, over both the restorative justice RCTs in Thames Valley and over the developing the links between the MPIA and and the program so it was a natural place to come and frankly it's also one of the world's best institutions on criminology so sure, yeah. you're gonna if you're gonna do it if you're gonna do it here um, I mean the great news is I never ever lose the boat race because I have degrees, <laughs> degrees from both Oxford and Cambridge and so it's yeah, like my girlfriend actually <laughs> boat, the boat race is an easy one it's a, it's a win um, yeah. either way mm. so uh, so it's it, and a PhD is a great way to become uh, to be to be part of the institution. I did it part time, yeah. which is a very long uh, process, nearly seven years. Um, and in that process, I've also taught police officers in places like India, across Scandinavia. Um, I've been involved in work at, with at Harvard on police police and, 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 safe, and public safety at in with the Canadian Council of Academies in Australia and, and now I'm teaching in Hong Kong and basically worldwide in those terms so it's been very cool it's been a very international profession yeah some of the reasons why I picked the institute actually was because of the international connections all the different policing, policing agencies and, yeah. and Chantillary when I came over yeah. yeah, I mean it's 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 an enormously international um, university in those terms, and plus the walking walking into just about any police service in the world, the Cambridge University badge is 
it goes alongside the one where I once I once managed to to get myself into the prison in Tamil Nadu that held the Tamil Tigers by simply saying I'm from I'm a chief inspector from I'm come from Scotland Yard and that worked an absolute dream. <laughs> I went and took tea with the Tamil Tigers, which was um, most most entertaining afternoon. Um, <laughs> so so yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it opens doors. Mm. Um, and the other thing about the about Cambridge University is that it just doesn't do stuff that is not of the highest quality. Yeah. So we don't have to have an argument about doing doing things that you don't want to do because the university won't let you do that because it's because it is committed to doing high quality research that has a major public impact, and f- and that's for me that's exactly the right place to be. Speaking of opening doors, um, <coughs> so you were appointed. Commander of the Order of the British Empire. What does this mean exactly, and what? How, why did you get one? Well, CBEs uh, a part of a the, the uh, a part of the Order of the British Empire, which I have to say is a, is a somewhat anachronistic title in that there isn't one of those. Um, but it was set up by the Queen's <coughs> grandfather in the nineteen twenties, um, and it and. It's the it's the order that most people get in the UK get their awards uh, under. Um, there are there are several grades in it, starting with with member and, and then officer. My grandfather was an officer of the British Empire, oh, cool. um, and then commander, and then knight of the British Empire. So I got commander, uh, and it's a very nice medal which comes with a lovely piece of parchment and I went to Windsor to receive it from Princess Anne so it was a wow. it's a nice thing to have it, it causes immense amusement anywhere other than the UK <laughs> and and it's also de- deliciously ironic because actually my first nationality is Swiss and I went had present I was uh, when I got the award I was taken to lunch by the Swiss ambassador who started lunch by pointing out very politely that as a Swiss citizen, it was actually not proper to accept honours. But as a British citizen, he was going to congratulate me and treat me <laughs> to a very nice lunch. So nice. it's it doesn't work very well in Switzerland because we don't have honours. Uh, but I'm also a British citizen, so it's fine. Hmm. So talking about your PhD now, um, I believe that was on the uh, Turning Point Project. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a bit about that and the, the key findings? So Turning Point was evolved out of a long-term interest that I had in uh, trying to divert people from uh, from prosecution. I had long believed that the simple process of prosecuting people in the criminal justice system is not a public good in of itself. Agreed. Uh, and that the, the, the thoughtless um, churning of people in the process is not, not to the wider public benefit. It's certainly a bad use of of, 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 of scarce resources in the criminal justice system and it's probably and I think the evidence indicates this for, for most first time offenders a pretty a pretty expensive way of make, making most people worse yeah. Yeah. so so but it's counterintuitive because for most people they think you know you committed a criminal offense and therefore you're going to be prosecuted well there is no therefore about it so what we what we wanted to do was to test which has never really been properly done, was to test prosecution against a diversion. And the only way to do that is to take people that would otherwise have been prosecuted. So we took a sample of offenders that the police in Birmingham 
had already decided should be prosecuted, that there was sufficient evidence and it was in the public interest to do so. We took, we took out the offenders where, there was, there were, where they were going to go to prison on first conviction because that mm. would, they, would, they were likely to be presenting an, an unacceptable risk. Uh, and a range of other, there were some things like we didn't, we didn't um, keep domestic violence into the, into the or hate crime in, in, the, in the trial, largely because we because it's difficult enough to do these sorts of things without adding in highly controversial issues at the yeah, first instance. Yeah, yeah. Um, we what we designed was a trial that was a deferred prosecution with conditions. So we once somebody had been uh, randomised into the trial as opposed to being uh, to prosecution. The, the, they had a meeting with an offender manager. That offender manager sat down with them and talked through why they were offended and what factors were contributed to it and what things might work in order to encourage them to desist. And then they, they agreed a contract that lasted for about four months. Um, they didn't have to admit the offence. Mm. And that's critical because we do know, um, we've known for quite a long time with cautioning, that... Uh, if there's a requirement to admit, that requ- that requires you to have some degree of confidence in the police, confidence that you know they're treating you fairly, confidence that you're prepared to admit an offence in front of them, and if you look at the the data on uh, disproportionality of, of uh, ethnic minorities, not just in the UK, or just across almost every country in the world, yeah. you are likely to have a lower level of admission in custody from uh, from, minor- from minority offenders. And that's certainly true within the UK. Uh, far fewer black young black men will admit offences in custody and similarly plead guilty when they get to court. As a result of which, they don't get cautions, they go to court early and they get convicted uh, earlier and therefore end up in prison faster. There's a few more steps to that, but that's, that's, yeah. that, that is essentially the, one, one of the potential impacts. Uh, which was covered in um, a very, very good report by David Lammy, an MP from North London, uh, on, on behalf of the Prime Minister. He's, he nailed it very elegantly and rather beautifully. Uh, and he rather likes Turning Point, because Turning Point doesn't require an admission. Uh, it actually turns out to have a significantly better outcome for black and minority offenders uh, than mm. prosecution. Interesting. And... It also produced a significant reduction in harm for all offenders, a significantly increased level of satisfaction from victims because they felt the police were making a a significant effort to try and reduce offending. It was at lower cost and in fact more offenders in the turning point uh, pool of of randomisation ended up being brought to account, i.e. having a set of Conditions and having a a process that they had that they had to deal with than than the ones that went to court, largely because in a system that's so constrained as res, uh, in resource terms as the UK, they a lot of cases spent a great deal of time, 15, 16, 17 uh, turns around through the court system before they finally got dropped. Effectively, the system just gave up. Um, so there was a there was a significant attrition rate, not all of which was to do with the quality of the evidence. So, yeah, yeah. Turning Point has already had, thanks to David Lammy, a very significant impact on the system. Because <laughs> a very significant impact on the system because David Lammy said, uh, recommended in his report that the deferred prosecution model be adopted and nationwide be adopted as wow. the model of pre-court diversion. Uh, and we're together with the Ministry of Justice working way through 
how that might happen. Um, which I think it's, I mean, putting my uh, academic hat on, I'm, I want to see it, uh, I want to see a replication because uh, we know there was we know at firstly we know we can do it better than we did it in in West Midlands because we learned a huge amount from the from the trial um, secondly uh, you know you shouldn't be you shouldn't be relying on one trial although I did a, I've also done a, a, a review of the wider evidence on diversion to, for, for the Ministry of Justice and I'm pretty confident the direction of travel is right on the basis of the evidence but I still want to see a replication, yeah. um, preferably somewhere, both somewhere rural as well as somewhere uh, grittily urban, um, preferably London. Mm-hmm. And that we're, we're working, we're working towards getting that to happen, nice. um, because it's yeah, it's a, it's the proper the proper approach is always to replicate. Um, you could replicate as part of a wider rollout, and that might be the way to do it, because governments, of course, don't want to wait another four years for a replication they want to get on with it mm. so it may well be that what we do is we we we, we do a, a phased rollout and use the phasing of the rollout to to test the, the the process yeah so given that you yourself have a lot of education coming through as a police officer and up to a tier constable and now you're a, a doctor would you recommend that other police recruits think about this kind of level of education or or what do you think well, as it happened, I did actually recommend exactly that. So the last thing I did as a as a as a police officer was to, on behalf of the then Prime Minister David Cameron and the Home Secretary Theresa May, was to write was to conduct a fundamental review of police training and leadership, in which I recommended that police training shift a gear in the UK. Uh, I reviewed police training worldwide and looked at what I thought were some of uh, some of the trends and some of the. Um, some of the things that we we needed to take rather better uh, care with in the UK, uh, and I suggested that the uh, that every police officer, whatever route they took to becoming a police officer, had to should go through a police initial qualification, and that that qualification should be set at the at a foundation degree level, and it should include a significant element of evidence based practice. Um, and broadly speaking, that's what's just happened. So mm. in England and Wales, every police officer will be required to attain the first part of the police education qualification framework, which will be a level six, I think, which is a, a full degree apprenticeship um, in order to qualify as a police officer. Uh, and nice. yeah, and that's a fun, that is a fundamental change to the British uh, police system. It's quite controversial because. I very carefully didn't use the D word in my report, degree, Fair. Uh, because I just set everybody's teeth on edge. Um, <laughs> and actually, I'm, and frankly, I don't think that the word apprentice is a great deal better um, because the police officer spent a great deal of time recovering from uh, terms like Robert Reiner's blue-coated worker uh, and a whole sense of inferiority about the social origins of police officers which is yeah, uh, yeah which is yeah i mean the police officer has has a number of very very important qualities one of them actually is a little bit like the navy was in the 18th century the police service is a highly egalitarian organization in that actually joining the police service with uh, with a degree from oxford and a background a public school background as well was not an advantage in any sense at all uh, and and that was a good thing I in a sense I sense it was a great thing because you're you're you are judged by your peers on your ability mostly 
on your ability to 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 get on with it and do things. Mm. There are some other aspects, but I mean that's the core of it, and that certainly the police service is very proud of being a highly egalitarian organisation, which is why it is highly resistant to things like direct entry from. from yeah. And why? What why, do you think about that? I, I mean, I, right. So the, the, there is a require, there is a need for the police service to be able to recruit really high quality people. Not everybody can be a beat bobby, um, and 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 not every beat bobby can be a chief. Uh, but it needs to recruit sufficient high quality people, and those and and these days they'll be high quality graduates. Yeah. Um. Who who can get to the top of the organization fast enough that they that they are that they've got a that they're still thinking fresh and being prepared to challenge mm. I mean if you get there after 30 years service you're going to be weary uh, so you need to get there early I mean I was a chief officer with uh, I'm trying to think, 16 17 years service but I'd done a whole range of, of things including being a homicide investigator in that period and I think the balance is between having the operational credibility of your peers and internally feel confident enough to deal with things, but also the ability to stand outside the organisation and look in and make change and be prepared to make changes. And that's a really difficult thing to do because after you know, once you've been in the organisation 15, 16 years, you you, you know you're your mind and body and soul is culturally attuned to the to the organisation, it's quite difficult to stand outside it. And it's been interesting after, well, it's nearly eight years now that I've been out, out of the service, it is much easier for me to stand outside it and look in. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, do you feel as though the academic lens pulls you back out of that culture in any sense? Well, I think the, I think the advantage of the academic lens, which is why actually higher education is really, really important at a series of levels in the policing, is it, is it provides you with a set of tools to, to help you to step out and look back in. Um, and it also provides you with a set of critical perspectives with which to view the organisation. Um, and and if, you can, if you can do that whilst also having an applied knowledge of things that may or may not work, um, then I think that does help you to be able to do that inside or outside a, a perspective of your own organisation, which is at times, you know, police service is perpetually in turmoil um, because it, because it's it's a it's an organisation that rolls from one crisis to the next. It's not alone in that respect, but I think it's particularly the case. Yeah. There is a cycle of of, of burn and bust uh, that just just does happen. If you, you know, the more you push on the performance side, the more you'll end up with 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 administrative corruption. The more you push on, you know, assertive aggressive policing styles, the more you'll end up with problems with the use of force and citizen engagement and citizen confidence. Which, and, but you know, at various times, politicians will be pushing for one or other of those outcomes, yeah. not necessarily too worried about the down, you know, the out, the the downsides in three or four years' time. By which stage they've probably got elected out. They're more yeah, concerned with the, more yeah. concerned. They're much more concerned with the short term short term gain rather than the long term pain that the police service will then will then accrue. Yeah. So I study my my. Uh, PhD field work in about a month and a half at a police force in the UK and there's a good chance that some of the recruits will listen to this this podcast mm-hmm. what advice would you give to recruits who are starting to come through oh well first of all it's a longer career than I um, 
than I started out. I mean, my the, you know, for me, the, the, the deal was 30 years. <laughs> um, it's now 35 at least. Um, so it's a longer career. Um, it's it, the other thing is it's it's more than one career. It's multiple careers. So in a 35 year career, there's a real opportunity to experience a whole series of careers within policing. The core of it, if any police officer coming into the organisation ever loses sight of the public service ethos, uh, it seems to me that at that point is that's a good moment to go and do something else. Mm. Um, it's such an important thread. It's what it's it what it's not just what's make what makes you valued by the public it's what makes you value yourself if you if you cease if you if you're doing things and they're not contributing to that sense of public service then i don't not only are you not a good police officer but i do think that's where you start to lose confidence in yourself mm. um and i mean my colleague dennis, dennis o'connor constantly talks about the other medal um, to the CBE, the, the, the Queen's Police Medal, because it's such an important medal. It, it is about uh, pu- the, the public service aspect of it. And what's great about the recent developments with that medal is it used to just go to chiefs. It was a bit like something that came with the cornflakes. It doesn't. And for the last decade or so, it hasn't done that. It goes across the service. It goes to people who do really exceptional things in policing. And, and that it emphasises that value of public service and uh, and, uh, and the way in which you do it the, 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 it shouldn't just be that you're delivering a service you're delivering a service in a way that matters which of course means that at times you have to stand up and say some pretty uncomfortable things to politicians and others who want you to do to take shortcuts and do things in different ways um, and that, at times that can be uncomfortable um, certainly was a whole series of I've put the phone down on at least two home secretaries uh, and both both of them for good reasons um, because they were asking me to do something that was inappropriate um, and and there are times when you have to stand up and be counted that's what being a good public servant is about sometimes you have to tell politicians what public service is about yeah it's really, you speak about this idea that um you will start to doubt your value as a police officer if you don't serve the community in which you live in. Uh, from my research, I look at police self-legitimacy, so the way in which police officers construct moral understandings of their authority that justify them having it to themselves and to the public. Um, what kind of things do you think help cultivate that, that sense? Well, well, there's a few things that should help to, and don't necessarily always. But the but the quality of the training, and the field, the field officer, so the probationer training officer support, are very very important. The quality of leadership by sergeants is critical. Um, absolutely critical. I mean, I, you know, I had I had some very good ones. I also had some shockingly awful ones when I was uh, when I was, uh, but the ones that. The one, the sergeants and inspectors that I worked for that, that were really good, they made a really significant difference to me. So finding really good role models, uh, people, who, people who, who are prepared to tell you home truths about your own performance, uh, but also, also modelling the type of behaviours that you, that, you know, really do need to be able to show. Um, I mean, they're not always the people that are easy to get on with. I had one particularly difficult sergeant. He was difficult in the sense that he constantly 
for example, he spent this quite, quite a bit of the shift. I was a police police constable. And I was at Aldershot, which was not the most, not is not the one of the more desirable towns in England and Wales. It was at that stage. It was it's the home of the British Army. There were a lot of infantry regiments in it. It could get a bit lively of an evening, <laughs> but it also seemed to me to be one of the coldest places on earth as well. Uh, and in the winter, we had a couple of particularly cold winters when I was a, pe- a police constable there. And my sergeant kept spent most of his time making damn sure that all of the officers were out of the police station, even at sort of three o'clock in the morning. I mean, it did make was immensely creative in finding places that were warm uh, for in the given the cold. Yeah. Uh, but what I suppose what, what went with that actually was uh, was he he also made damn sure that we were being. Uh, encouraged to do courage to, to do things that were really going to add value so he was a stickler but he was a stickler for the right things and however much I felt at times that I could have done with getting into the warm maybe doing a bit of paperwork it's the only time paperwork looked, looked advantageous actually what he taught me was you know, that every hour of every day you should be thinking about what am I what am I you know, why am I doing this what am I contributing now what you know when I'm walking down this street, uh, you know how can I how can I do that better? How can I make sure that that, that the, when I answer that next call and deal with that next victim that I'm doing it in the right way? Uh, and I did try to pass that on when I was a sergeant and an inspector. Um, I was quite an active sergeant and very active inspector. Be one of those pains in the ass. I, I don't think I was a pain in the ass. Well, maybe I was. I, was really <laughs> I, I think I was a pain in the ass mostly because I wanted to get on and do stuff. And I, I was. I suppose I had a low tolerance of people who were not quite so eager. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I was. A, I probably was a pain in the ass to people who were a pain in my ass and weren't, <laughs> weren't actually doing what they, what, I, what what we needed them collectively to do. Yeah. But I had some fantastic shifts of officers at um, in Southampton and uh, Basingstoke and places. So. Yeah, nice. So coming back to the other side now, um, what advice would you give to criminologists? Um, I think the right. So it depends on the field, but if if the criminologists are working with policing, then then I mean I I do think that time spent listening and time spent really quite trying to understand the the, the you know how policing works. It's really difficult to write about a topic and to research a topic like policing without spending that time. So, uh, field work, field field work is. I mean, even if you're running an RCT and you're focused on the quantitative outcomes, etc., it should involve a, a, a significant degree of observational, qualitative field work, which is not just about the field work. It's also about getting to understand the context. Mm. Getting to understand the process of socialisation in policing, the the, uh, the 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 connections between different parts of the organisation, which are so very different, and and what it feels like to be doing the day job of policing. Um, you know, we often forget that. You know, you you do you do an eight maybe twelve often a twelve hour shift, but you do an eight hour shift, and then and then you go home, and you and there's a lot of there's you know there's the shift work, the travelling to work, the family life that's got to be balanced alongside that. There, there is the occasional moments of of startling danger, and I've had a few of those. Yeah. Um, and and alongside that, there is you know there are a lot of things that are, that are uh, uncomfortable and unwanted, 
not least of which is paperwork. Uh, but but the and sometimes you know the sometimes the quality of the management as well and the leadership. So, but getting a sense of what it really feels like to be in to be inside the organisation and. And, and how that and how the you know the public's reaction to you makes you feel good or not depending on how it goes and how the the press impact on you. Um, you know, I mean, at the moment, for example, the tabloid press can't seem to leave any occasion on which a police officer is seen eating a burger or or, or drinking something out, and it really it is a really unpleasant. It's a really unpleasant piece of journalism mm. because why on earth can a constable not have a cup of coffee and a sandwich in the public domain. In there are many, most countries in the world that that is that is not just normal. It it is seen as part of their presence in the community that they go and use the local diner or whatever. So in the states, yeah, yeah, sure. In the UK, we seem to have a pathology about seeing police officers having a, a few minutes downtime and eating eating a sandwich in public, which I which is I think is disgraceful, mm-hmm. and certainly. Um, and certainly the, the, the way in which that's treated as, as police officers wasting their time. It goes along with the other classic, was, you know, one the absolute favourite quotation from a member of the public is, I pay my t- your, your, your wages. <laughs> I've always found that a thoughtful and helpful contribution to my day job. Um, yeah. I'd say, it, you know, earlier on in my career, it almost certainly got you prosecuted. <laughs> certainly not the appropriate. Cop. If you're asking, if you're asking me to exercise my discretion, you 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 pretty much just decided to me that I'm not going to. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. because I mean, it's a very practical issue. I mean, if you know, if you're looking for someone who's who's showing some signs of having absorbed the message that you've just given them, the fact that they've just decided to snap at you in that in those terms when you're trying to be reasonable and tell them about their speeding is is probably a pretty good indication that prosecution is required in order to ram the message home. So <laughs> get real. If you talk to each other, talk to people nicely, both as the person that's been stopped and the police officer, we get on a whole lot better. Yeah. Would you care to talk about any of those instances you said that were um, close to the edge in terms of uh, um, danger? Well, I mean, the, 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 any number of... Um, police pursuits as a as a as a young constable, one of which I think we ended up demolishing five cars in the process, which wasn't the desired result. Police cars, or well, they weren't all police cars. Uh, it was, I mean, the guy in the car in the car in front had a firearm which he had discharged, and um, in some ways, I suppose, on earth we were rushing towards him is another question that you could have asked on reflection. But were you armed yourselves? Not as such. No, <laughs> the day could have gone badly. Um, but well it was you know it, it was a slightly different era I think we would undoubtedly have paused and got a firearms team out but we, this was before armed response vehicles were a standard part of the of the fair we would have probably got um, a few Smith and Wesson revolvers out of the out of the safe at the police station if we'd had a chance to do it but we didn't um, it, it, he managed to uh, knock himself out so we were fine we, we got there but it was probably not the wisest thing to done we didn't sit there and do a health and safety risk assessment um, I, I mean there was one particular instance where as the investigating officer of a, of a what appeared to be a suicide uh, I nearly ended up giving myself cyanide poisoning because I walked into the room um, and then realised what I was smelling and retreated and had to, and ended up in hospital so though I have been, I have been 
a few awkward moments yeah um, and a few very unpleasant moments um, I, I was the I had a, I had one, one or two very 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 busy weekends as a homicide investigator notably one which I think I can't remember the body count was but it was in it was in double figures wow. it started on Friday with stabbings and went through Saturday with a number of serious sexual assaults and stabbings and finished with four, four dead children in a fire on about three o'clock on the Sunday morning right and yeah I had done a lot too many post-mortems and a lot too many crime scenes by the end of that weekend do you feel that your work has made you cynical about the world at all? Well, there's always an there's always a tendency to be there's always a tendency to be cynical in the sense that you do as a police officer, uh, you do tend to see people at their worst, yeah, um, or some people at their worst. That said, if you're, uh, I mean, you know, people, when people are high on drugs or they're, they're you know they're, they're, they're distressed. Or or drunk or whatever they you know, it is it it's always it's always a good thing to see them when they've sobered up, um, and see them as a human being rather than someone who's who's shouting and and being violent. I think, and I think it's important to do that as well. There are very few people that I've encountered, even in you know even as a senior detective, very few people I've encountered that really made me feel that they were. Um, well, the, cab- the tabloid phrase would be evil. I can think of one or two, but I think they are—they are the sort. They are people for whom the only solution, unfortunately, is perpetual incarceration because they are just lethal. Mm. Um, and I'm, well, I'm pleased to say I did bang up a couple of those. And I don't think that makes you cynical. I just think that makes you rather more aware than you than most citizens are of some of the. Uh, some of the really, and I sat. I was the independent reviewer for the for the parole board um, for about four years, and I saw all of the cases where people had been released and then gone on to commit more other serious offences. And some of those people were in that category. That really and honestly, as one psychologist said in the course of one of the discussions, he said, "I really do think, Peter." He said, "I think this case is a pine box case." I said, "What do you mean by a pine box case?" He said, "Well, this person should only leave prison in a pine box." Wow. Um, it's dark. and it was a dark moment but <laughs> I'm afraid to say I think he was right uh, there was absolutely no evidence that this offender was going to stop committing very very serious offences mm. and frankly incarceration until until they passed away was probably the only solution so. uh, particularly given that he actually attended the parole board hearing in a wheelchair claimed that he was no longer mobile and carried on committing serious offences from his wheelchair so I really did think there was probably no solution but but retaining him in the in the carceral state so and just finishing up um, where do you see policing heading in the future in say 20 30 years well I mean there's a core of what policing the police do that will probably always be done by the police um, but things are changing things are changing really quite rapidly so I mean 10 years ago there was very little cyber and internet based crime mm. um, now that is a, that is as much there is as much crime that is labelled cyber and internet based as there is that isn't so I mean and we've come to start using this horrible phrase traditional crimes there's no such thing as traditional crime there's just crime and it comes in, t- in comes in technology enabled for forms and non technology enabled forms i.e. burglary at one, on the one hand and 
and, and cyber fraud in another. So, and that's changed. The police service is tradition is a, is a very human intensive organisation that has has relied on uh, physical presence and deterrence as the model. That does not work that well in the world yeah. of cyber yet. So I think the police service has got to ups, upskill and shift its ground because there is a lack of deterrence on the internet and somebody needs to give deterrence and do it in a way that that brings people to justice inevitably because that is the key role that most people miss for the police service. The police service is the gateway to the criminal justice system. It, 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 it's individual, individual officers make the decision as to whether something is a crime and whether it should be treated by the criminal justice system. And I do think that is at the core of what the public police uh, should should continue to do. A lot of other organisations can do quite a lot of the other things that the police service do, but no one, frankly, should be involved. else should be involved in that, because that is must be a publicly accountable function. How that shifts and changes... Um, I mean, We'll still be prosecuting people in 30, 40 years' time. Um, we'll probably do a lot more of it digitally, um, but it'll still be that process. You will still always need to lay hands on people to arrest them, because we'll have a digital process, unless, of course, we're going to send AI robots out to do That's my next question. <laughs> which, which, I, which I rather think we're not, actually, because there is some, an AI robot isn't democratically accountable, and I think that's still going to matter. Um, and I think it's still going to matter. The police service, it seems to me, will, can make use of technology, but it should always be fundamentally human beings who are, who are making human... Because, in fact, if you look at predictive policing and all of these the algorithms that people are relying on, the one overwhelming things that, thing that consistently comes across from the public is, yeah, OK, you can use your algorithms, but we ultimately we want a human being to make the decision, and then we want to be able to hold a human being to account for the final decision. Yeah. So enable support uh, help the police service to make you know to use you know computer computer based decision systems to make better decisions more consistently but ultimately there needs to be a human being that makes those decisions and a human being that deter- that governs the human beings that are doing so that uh, and, and a mission that is a, that is a human mission not an ai mission i think that seems to me to be fundamental because frankly if we do end up in in the in the world of uh, of uh, of the of the robot detective and the and the and the, you know that the awfulness of the of the of the cyber cop, then then I think we've rather lost it. We're, we're more it's more all well than than um, than proper policing, and I don't think we want to go there. I don't think that would be a proper basis for dem- democratic policing. Might be the basis for some for other types of policing, but not for democratic policing. Have you seen the film Chappie by any chance? I've seen. Quite a number of films in this territory, most of which I've not seen that particular one. Uh, but but you, cool. know, but, but you know, but but you know, a lot of people have accused us with the with the algorithms that we've been seeking seeking to develop on on uh, harm and risk that we've been doing yeah. minority report. Well, we're not doing minority report. We're we're not we're not trying to we're not doing um, pre crimes. What we're trying to do is to provide the police service with the tools to make better decisions. Actually, to make fewer decisions about in, intervention because if you if you if you've got better uh, better data about what might happen you can choose rather more carefully and thoughtfully not to intervene with yeah. with, a, with a degree of safety and it seems to me the great hope for 30 to 40 years time is that the police service is better equipped with tools to enable it to be able to intervene less 
but when it does intervene, to intervene more successfully. That, if we could achieve that with a technology, yeah. that, would, that would be a fantastic outcome. Well, Peter, thank you for your time. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, yeah, peace out, everyone. Thank you.